Okay, uh, in in ask, I want to first begin by asking the question, uh, raising the question first, um, before us to set the need is this: uh, is how often do you think about worshiping God, and do you think carefully about your approaches towards God? Right. I think we should ask this question. Um, sometimes we could just think worship is only Sunday morning. We just show up and we don't really think about it. We sing the words and we don't even think and reflect in the word. We just feel happy for the moment. Okay, but I think this psalm really challenges us. It cha- definitely challenged me this morning, looking through this, or last night even. I was thinking, whoa, God, when we worship God, we have to really think a little bit about it a bit more. Okay, so this challenges us. Okay, um, and even raise those questions that Jin pointed out. Like, wait, how can we even go uh, approach this? Okay, so today we're going to really look at three imperatives we need to follow uh, so that we will live a life that truly matters. And really a life that really matters is a life of worship of God. So these are three points today I set up, okay? Um, so bear with me. Today's one of those sermons, if you only listen halfway and do not listen to the second half, it'll be heresy, okay? Um, but we look at these slowly first. We see what's going on in the words, and then we look at the canonical flow, even in terms of how this fits in the structure in relation to other songs. So there will be three imperatives. Yeah, three imperatives is number one, we need to ask life's most important question. We need to ask life's most important question. Point number two is what, Josh? We need to hear the answer to life's most important question. Yeah. We need to trust in God's assurance. Good. Yeah, okay. Then we need to, yeah, so these are the three things we need to see the structure of this. Okay, so the first one, point one is verse one. And the second part is verses two to five. The second half or, or second line of verse 5. And the last part is just the last line of verse 5, okay? So in a directory matter, who wrote this song? It's written by David, right? Or David, okay? And I actually think this is in relation to Psalm 14. Do you guys remember Psalm 14 last week? We look at it. Most of us remember Psalm 14 with the first verse. Mm-hmm. It's so epic. What does Psalm 14 verse 1 says again? You guys remember from last week? The fool says what? Said in his heart, there's no God. And remember how we mentioned about Psalm 14, verse 1 and 3 is quoted in Romans 3. About this is the human condition of all people. No one seeks God. Now this is a contrast with this. Psalm 15 is the very opposite of saying, okay, if God is working in individuals to seek God, what does this look like? Okay? This is the opposite of the individual from Psalm 14. Okay? So let us now look at point number one. Yeah. So this is where I think whenever we look at the psalm, the more I study the psalm, the more I feel, man, we have to look at it in its context, in relations to other psalms. Because when you see, like, wow, the purposeful um, juxtaposition of each one, it adds and informs. Okay, it's like a one puzzle piece next to each other. But if you only take one out of context, you might actually think, okay, no one seeks God at all. No one seeks God at all. Okay, that means I could do whatever I want. No. But we see now Psalms 15, God is still working. For some, He works, regenerate, He draws them to seek them. So now we ask, what does this look like? Okay. So point number one, we need to ask life's most important question. Oh Lord, I'm quoting here now verse one. Oh Lord, how may, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Really in verses one, there's two questions. But I think these two questions make the same point. Okay. So let's look at each one of these questions first. The first one is, oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? The word uh, for abide, when you look at verses 1 and 2, they parallel, but actually there is some nuance of differences, there's some shades of differences, okay? Uh, for instance, when we look at verses 2, uh, when we look at verses 2, uh, when you look at verses 2, uh, verses 1, I mean, the first part, the verb, the first, with well, the first one, okay, would it ask 
the question of uh, abide, or it brings up the Hebrew verb. It actually, this is, uh, some of the other versions says sojourn. You guys know what sojourn means? Yeah, to journey, okay. When you're sojourning, are you permanently in a place or temporarily? Temporarily. Temporarily, okay. So the Hebrew verb here for abide refers to temporary residence in which one is sojourning or spending. Usually the idea of like you go somewhere, when you guys been road travel, if you guys spend a night in a hotel for one night, that's what sojourning would be, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is where, uh, this is what it's referring to, okay? Um, so, then if you also look at the other thing, uh, the where it is it sojourning at, the location, it mentioned the word tent, okay? Now, this is where I'm quoting one of my Hebrew professor, tent Dr. here. Barrett. Yeah, Dr. Barrick. Uh, tent refers to also temporary dwelling okay mm-hmm. temporarily dwelling okay by the way uh, so I don't think this is here saying okay David just only wants to spend time with God only a little bit because if you turn with me real quick to Psalm 61 verse 4 Psalm 61 verse 4 let's turn over there real quick Psalm 61 verse 4 could I have a volunteer read out loud Psalm 61 verse 4 Okay. In context, the Hebrew verses 1, which is our English, what is the subscript above verses 1? Uh, it mentioned this is by David, right? Mm-hmm. And here, notice he says he wants to dwell in whose tent forever? God's tent, okay? This is, I think, I don't think, this is referenced back then. There was no temple yet. Because remember, the temple is later built by who? God, but through David's son, Solomon, okay? Which in Hebrew, I always think the Hebrew name for Solomon is very funny, slow-mo. Okay, like slow motion. Okay, so slow mo was the one that built it. So David wanted to build it, but obviously God said, "You're a man of war; you can't build it." So back then, it was a tabernacle, and a tabernacle was a tent. With, what's inside is what the um, the uh, uh, what do you call it? the the ark, the ark of the covenant. Inside, there's what the Ten Commandments, the original uh, tablet, Ten Commandments, and also Aaron's bud. Okay, uh, and there's all the other things. Uh, Affiliated with the temple outside of the holies of holies and the holy place, so this is why he's saying here. So I want to point it out here is you can't look at him and says, "Oh, I just want to spend a little bit of time with God, temporarily," because no, that's not what he's saying. Because the temple back then there was no temple; it was just a tabernacle. Right. It was a tent. Okay, literally it was a tent. So, but then yet he says at the same time, "I want to spend with God what forever." Right. Okay, let's look at the second one. It's the second question: Who may dwell on your holy what? Hill. Hill, okay. Now, this is where there is a transition period we need to realize with David. David eventually would want to move the tabernacle to Jerusalem, okay? Now, let's look at the verb dwell. It's different than the word sojourn or the word abide earlier. It's a permanent dwell now, resident? Yeah, permanent resident. That is where you're settling down. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, we'll ask where you guys live. You know, I say, oh, I'm living right now in six, well, I shouldn't say it online, but, you know, like uh, in Pasadena because you're right now being alive here. But when we say, where do you live? We often say, where's your permanent residence? That is, where do you stay the night? Where do you have your home? Okay? So now the word dwell refers to permanent uh, residence. Okay? And then the word hill. Okay? Uh, the word hill, like dwell, refers to also permanent dwelling place. Okay? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh-huh. So, no, uh, I don't think so. Yeah, go check first. Yeah, just, yeah. Uh, so, here we see, uh, according Second Samuel six, okay. So in order to understand this, I think what about hill, and 
um, also as well with tent, is I think one thing we need to realize is back then, uh, this was a transition period. There's no temple yet. So the temple, uh, the, t the tabernacle was actually in one location. And then also as well, there was worship going on. Uh, David became king. When David became king, he made his capital where, guys? Where's his capital at? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, you remember he conquered an uh, enemy people called Jebusites. And then he took over and then that became his capital. Was there worship going on there? Yes, okay. We see it in 2 Samuel 6. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to the, ta uh, the, Ark, to the capital of Jerusalem. And there was worshiping taking place yes. here. But at the same time, this was a transitionary period. Um, there was also the animal sacrifice was not in Jerusalem yet at this time. It was actually five miles north, uh, north, uh, northwest, okay, in uh, Gibeon, okay. So there was actually two different locations of worship. So he's asking, Lord God, how could I approach basically the place where their sacrifice where worship is and where, how could I approach the tabernacle worship? The issue is not location. The issue is not location. The issue is how can we go and worship God in His presence, okay? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Okay. That makes sense. So in light of this, the, these two questions summarized could be this. If we could ask in one way, is how can we go to God's presence and worship Him? And by the way, as application, this is an important question we should be asking, okay? Life's most important question. By the way, what is the purpose of man? What is the purpose of man? To serve God? Okay, good. To what? To enjoy God. To enjoy God. glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yeah, Westminster Catechism, right? first chapter this is a, um, one of the early Puritan document is the idea uh, summarize the very first chapter what is the purpose of all man we need to realize is what it's to worship God really to glorify Him and what's the best way we glorify Him is by actually enjoying Him okay you don't glorify Him when you do things like oh I hate God I don't want to do this I'm just doing the chore the best way you glorify Him is you actually loving Him and enjoying Him okay so in light, if this is life's most important purpose, this is our main purpose, then what is life's most important question should be, how can we go to God's presence and worship Him? Okay? But oftentimes people don't ask this question. We have yeah. to ask ourselves a question, what is the most important question we ask? And some people's most important question include the following, how can I be happy? Or when will I get married? When will I get married? Will sure. my kids grow up to be okay? Yeah, sometimes people ask those questions, okay? Now, are those questions important? Yes. No, yeah, in and of itself is not wrong. But they're not life's most important singular ultimate question. Okay? By the way, I think your ultimate question will shape the other questions also as well. Okay? So in light of this, uh, are we asking questions in our life? What we ponder, what we think about, what we daydream about? Maybe the question will reflect something other than what God wants or what we're designed to be our most important question. Okay? So I'm not dismissing those questions are not important. But we must ultimately put the first question first that shape how we answer the secondary uh, and very important questions, okay? Uh, here in this verse, we also see life's most important question. Let me read it again. Who can be in God's presence and worship Him? How can we be in God's presence to worship Him? Notice also this question challenges us still further, okay? We sometimes think we can go to God any way, no matter what way, to worship Him. And this challenges a little bit by saying what? Wait, wait, God has some requirements, okay? We approach worshiping according to God's term and not our own term. Does that make sense? And now, it, I can't domesticate this. Yeah, uh, a neuter this, but we have to go by what God says. Also, thank you, Josh, you want to read that part? Also, it challenges us to think that it isn't merely God's privilege to worship Him, but it is our privilege to worship Him. 
Yeah, so when I ask the question, how can we go to God? Sometimes we think, oh, you know what? God benefits. Okay, I worship God for five minutes. Yay, God, you see, you must really enjoy it, which He does. He's satisfied. He's joyful of it. But sometimes we think like it's more of His privilege than really what? Our privilege to go. So notice this, it's setting up this question by asking, who can approach this holy hill? It challenges, in other words, to think about God-centered worship instead of man-centered worship, okay? Uh, I love this song. The first time I really remember this song was 10 years ago. I preached one of the early days when I started preaching at different various Indonesian church. One of the ladies that coordinates guest speakers for her church went up to me and said, I read this song for devotion, and I'm struggling because I'm reading this, and ask this question who can go to my holy hill and I'm thinking and I'm looking at the requirement and I'm thinking I can't go to God to worship Him I can't go to God what do you think Jimmy how do you answer this and my answer is you're right you can't go to God and I can't go to God but this is why we need Christ to be able to go to God these are the true requirements but if you see this if, you, if there's a sense of anguish we're also doing this rightly we realize we cannot go to God alone. This is why we need Psalm 16 to follow later. But I'm already revealing uh, spoilers for the ending, okay? But here we see, yet at the same time, we need much of approach God worshiping according to our terms rather than what? Our own terms, okay? So God's term instead of our own terms, okay? Question. Go ahead. Is the privilege of worshiping God greater than the privilege of the President of the United States? Yeah, I think worshiping God... By the way, even the president must worship God. We're called to worship God in our own life, in our own station, okay, that we're called, okay. Uh, I remember when I was a young high schooler, um, there was this one person that went to Calvary Chapel. Uh, his dad, whenever he sees me, when he picks up his dad, because we were in the Christian club, the, dad, the guy would always tell me, like, you know what, if you desire to be a pastor... You have a more important job than the president. I was like, no, the president has a nuclear bomb and everything else. He says, no, you'll be in caring of soul if you ever do. So you better be serious. You better really be. And I was like, yeah, you know, of course, obviously the president, you know, is very important. I don't want to downplay it. It's a different role. But we must realize this is a very important role. People's lives are at stake, right? People's lives are at stake. Um, you realize when it comes to training, you guys realize even the role of combat, people's lives is where people die, right? Yes. You guys know how long for a Marine... Uh, by the way, let me ask you guys a question. Are there more combat uh, pilots or are there more infantry officers, platoon commanders? What do you guys think? There's actually fewer. There's more pilots, actually, than infantry platoon commanders because the amount of platoon is like 30 to 40 people and, like, you know, there's only so much with that. There's actually fewer combat... By the way, do you know how long the Marine Corps take to train one infantry officer? So they went go to boot camp three months, like their version... And then they spend six months. And you know how many percentage uh, dropout rate of Marine officers? There's a 40 to 60% dropout rate, okay? And then those guys, why? Because the guys that handle the platoons, those guys are life and death decisions, okay? So by the time they're there, I always feel like with every infantry officer, they kind of look like Mustangs. They kind of look like horses after a while. I mean, they're skinny guys and everything, but they're like, man, they're more fit. I remember we had one. Uh, who became our XO for 323 when I was there. They were kind of made fun because he was the skinny guy and like he one time yelled at us and said, hey, you're packing to be secure. You guys look like baboons. And then he, he's a skinny guy and he shows his pack. He's shaking and it just, he started looking like a baboon. Then he was like, oh, really? You guys going to laugh? Then the next time he was in charge of hiking uh, the, and he took off running and I was a radio operator and I remember thinking, I'm so glad I was next to him because man, he showed everyone who's stronger, okay? But I realized, why, do we, why are they so serious? Because why? These guys take lives in their hands. How, well, that's why we tell pastors it must be serious role when we teach why it's ser serious right 
to say, hey, we can't just have anybody. Hopefully we want more people to teach, but this is where lives and souls are at stake, okay? So let's go back on with the application here, okay? We must worship God. And then remember how Psalm 14 and 15, there's a contrast? Psalm 15 is now, someone is asking a question, how can I worship God? The other one, earlier Psalm 14, he doesn't care about God. Doesn't t- seek God. Which one will you be? The individual described in Psalm 14 or the individual described in Psalm 15? You got to make a decision. Okay? Mm-hmm. May we be the one that desire to live like and emulate Psalm 15. Okay? Mm-hmm. Let's go to point number two. We need to hear the answer to life's most important question. Earlier, the most important question again is what? How can we go and worship God in His mm-hmm. presence? Point number two, we need to hear the answer to life's most important question. Okay? We need to hear the answer. Okay? Um, we're going to look at this, but we're going to look canonically also as well in relation to Psalm 16. Okay, um, and the re- actually relations to the rest of Psalm. Okay, so in answering uh, David's question, uh, the question David notes the characteristics of a true worshiper of God. Okay, mm-hmm. now we have a whole bunch of questions, but let's look at this first, the details first. Okay, because those questions that pop up is, wait, is this saying we have works righteousness in order to worship God that we could have? Is it our merited point of our own righteousness to our own credit, or is this saying these are the characteristics, these are the fruits? Okay, but let's look at these characteristics first. There's a back and forth. I like what um, uh, Da noted earlier. If you look at verses two in the beginning, it's three positive activities. Okay, three positive activities. Then in verses three, it describes negative characteristics, saying a true worship of God. This is not what's going to define them. Okay. Then it goes to positive again in verses four. Uh, then also in verses five. Okay. It goes to negative characteristics again, okay? So there's three positive, three negatives, two positives, and two negative descriptions, okay? But we're going to uh, group them into even more um, a shorter description, okay? So David begins with verses 2. If you notice the characteristics, I like how he lays it out with activities, right? Walks, works, and speaks, okay? We walk in life, we what? We work and we speak, okay? So we're going to see the first characteristics is a believer's or true worshiper's general tendencies as described with the verbs of walk, work, and speak, okay? Um, so when it says he, he who walks with integrity, literally in the Hebrew, it means walk wholeheartedly. And elsewhere in wholeheartedly, it means walking with loyalty towards God. A true worshiper of God that's approaching worshiping Him will be defined one of the hallmarks will you be loyal to who? To God, okay? Loyal to God. He's not seeking other idols, other false religions, other isms and prisms and all the other things. But he's seeking God, okay? There's also internal and external tendency of the worship of God. Externally, what we can see is he has, he does have a display of righteousness, okay? Uh, some versions translate this as blameless. And to say you're perfect, but there's a sense of like, you look at the person and say, oh, this person, generally we would say, has some positive, godly characteristics, okay? But there's also, there's something going on internally that he knows and God knows. He speaks truth in his heart. Do you guys see that in verses 2? By the way, look at Psalm 14 again. Look with me in Psalm 14, verses 1. Someone read Psalm 14, verses 1 for me. Any volunteer? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay, we'll stop there real quick. There's just the first part of verse 1. The fool says what? He speaks in his own heart. What does he say? This is what he truly believes, what he says to his heart. He preaching to himself what? There's no God. Look with me back in Psalm 15, verses 2. This is one who worshiped God. He's not just saying, oh, there is a God, there is a God. What does he say to his own heart? 
He speaks truth. That is, he speaks God's word. He's preaching to himself, okay? Every one of, say this after me. Every one of us, Every one of us is a preacher. Is a preacher. You guys realize you're always preaching something to your heart, okay? You're either preaching a negative message, an overly optimistic message that's not reality, or you're preaching God's word, which is reality, right? And God's word, the full counsel, is not just only what to do, what's the righteous thing to do, but also include preaching the gospel to ourselves, okay? One of the parts I like about evening devotion is, I love morning devotion, it sets my day right, reading what God requires of me, read the theology book because I have my strength. One of the things I like about evening devotional, I read things more lighter, is I always want to end with preaching gospel to myself. Because I've sinned throughout the day, I had bad attitude, I, I, I don't do things rightly, and then I look at my own heart, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and all of that, and say, you know what, I'm a sinner, Lord God, I want to confess this to you, and Lord, show me your grace. Oh, wow. You would have sent me still. What a great God. And I sleep like a baby. Okay? Sleep like a baby. Sleep in grace. Okay? So that's the first characteristics. Okay? Uh, second characteristics is a worshiper's speech. This is found in verses 3. Let's look at verses 3. Um, Doc, could you read uh, verses 3 out loud? He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up approach against his friend. Okay, so here in verses 3, you see, now it looks at the, uh, the speech. By the way, what we say reveal a lot about what? Ourselves, okay? Uh, it's sometimes out of the mouth, what? The heart speaks, right? Right. Uh, or out of the heart, the mouth speaks, I'm sorry. Okay? Uh, so here we see here, uh, first and foremost, uh, the characteristic is he, now there's more negative, it's saying he does not slander. The word slander literally is leg spy. Literally means someone walking around, looking for bad information, getting that bad information, and then what? Telling everyone else to the detriment and the hurt of the other individual. Okay, we should not slander. Okay, we should not slander. The second line also reveals a more general principle that governs life, including how we speak. It says, "Nor does e- nor, nor does evil to his neighbor." Okay, he doesn't want to do evil, and that controls. He doesn't want to speak evil of others. Okay. A true worshiper also does not take up a reproach against his friend, okay? All your versions say reproach, okay? By the way, David would know this word reproach a lot, okay? When most people hear the word David, when you say David in any church Sunday school, most people will say, tell me something about David. What do you guys would say about David? He killed Goliath. He killed Goliath, okay? The word, uh, very good, okay? David would have known this word, uh, this word would have struck very home for him because the word, remember when Goliath, why did David eventually kill him? It was not because David just didn't like him. It was why? It was because he was mocking who? God, okay? In fact, the word reproach actually appears uh, in six different times in 1 Samuel 17. Remember the story of David and Goliath? It appears six different times to refer to Goliath mocking God. It appears in 1 Samuel 17 verse 10, verse 25, 26 twice, which now makes it, what, a total of four times, and then verse 36 and 45, okay? This term basically means ridicule and making a mockery of somebody, okay? So David knows what this term is. In fact, he's offended when someone mocks God. But now David says, you know what, a true worshiper of God, he's not going to be mocking and making fun in a cruel, mean way a friend or somebody else, okay? So true worshiper of God will not only not scorn, his neighbor, but of course he would not scorn God, okay? Uh, he would not scorn his neighbor, others, and also towards God, okay? 
So that's a characteristics in how he speak, okay? Or what he does not say. Let's look at third characteristics. We're now looking at a worshiper's affection. That is what he loves and what he does not love. By the way, you guys know, um, when you love something, you hate something. You guys realize that? Yeah. When you hate something, you love something. Um, back in the day, a long time ago in our church, like almost 19 years ago, uh, or 18 years ago, we used to have an Irish preacher, almost became our preacher, almost became the pastor of our church, a guy named Michael Flemings, okay? He was this guy from Northern Ireland, okay? Uh, and he used to have a tattoo because before he became a Christian, he was like just this tough guy, you know? Uh, love, on one hand, he tattooed, and the other one, hate. Wow. And he'll look, and he'll come to our church, and Pastor Lane would always be, uh, did you, I think you met? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, he preached one time when he came to Shepherd's Coffee. I remember... Yeah. Yeah. He came to my church and I still remember. Yeah, but I remember it always caused a scene because in the Chinese congregation, when he goes down to get food, he'll be like, at one hand, hold, shake your hand with love, and then grab food as hate. And I remember thinking, oh, and then he's like, oh, brother, this was before I was a Christian, okay? Before I was a Christian, okay? And eventually he had to remove the tattoo. It cost a lot of money, but he says he need to because he didn't want to stumble others, okay? Um, but there's a truth. Whatever you love, you would hate, okay? Uh, whatever you love, you would hate, okay? Um... If you love your wife, if there's someone that wants to commit adultery to your wife, what would you do? What would it probably say? You would probably hate that, like, uh, you know, even you know, kill, right? People sometimes would do that kind of thing. Because even Proverbs is honest, it's really honest. Say, hey, you know what? You want to be foolish? You want to, you know, um, commit adultery and you'll have the husband scorned. I mean, he's going to be out to get you, okay? Um, if you love godly things, you will hate what? Sinful things, right? You hate if you love sinful things, dark things. You'll what? Hate the things of God. You hate light. Okay. So if you look here, there is also the same way. Let's start with the part that's more easier to understand. With the last part of verse four, the last part of verse four says, "A a true worship of God will honor those who fear the Lord." Okay, will fear the Lord. Okay. I was looking early at those books, all those biographies of my wife, uh, books of all these godly examples. Now, if you love the Lord, you, when you read biographies of missionaries and preachers, you would what? You'll love and like, wow, and you'll be moved and ministered to, okay? Sometimes what, what I try to do is I try to read at least one Christian biography a year. The reason why I try to do that is sometimes we read the Bible's example, and sometimes I know our sinful heart says, oh yeah, but that's them. They had a special relationship with God. Why I like to read sometimes different preachers and different Christian um, more is like, oh, whoa, this is even outside the Bible. There's an example for us also as well to live out, okay? So you would honor those who fear the Lord, okay? You honor those who fear the Lord, you know? Uh, I love Charles Spurgeon. He's my favorite preacher that I like dead preacher to read because when I read him, I can hear him still, okay? Um, then Jen did a beautiful painting of Spurgeon, right? Where we honor him and his memory. I right? read a book, and I remember uh, one of the children's books that I had from Reformation Trust, I got these bio cardboard biography cardboard books for little kids and I ask my little daughters I read to them all the time because they love these little books okay um, these little ones there one time I asked my daughter Hannah I mean, Hannah is so adorable these little kids in, right? I asked him like who is um, uh, who uh, so I asked him who is Katrina uh, Catherine uh, Catherine uh, Luther okay uh, Catherine Luther which is the wife of what Martin, uh, Luther. Martin Luther okay and then who is uh uh, what call it? Uh, Su 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 uh, Susanna Spurgeon. So I asked who she who she is, and the story is about you know she has a lot of books. So Hannah says, oh she has a lot of.
books, okay? Then I ask, who's this? And she'll say, oh, she has a lot of children like Mama, okay? She says, you know, this is like Dada, had a lot of books, and this is like Mama, a lot of kids. I was like, oh, well, we both had a lot of kids and books, right? So that's kind of funny, okay? But why we share this is because we honor those who fear the Lord, okay? We honor those who fear the Lord, okay? We don't worship them. They're not saints. I don't like, you know... Rub them and like you know kiss it and have a good luck or anything else like that. That's weird. Okay, that's unbiblical. But yeah, we honor those. So then with that, let's look at the other line. This is the part that gets kind of harder, where we're shocked. It says in this first part said in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. Did you catch that? It's saying yeah. you would hate a reprobate. Okay. Uh, I don't want to get into whole theology. Okay. If you guys remember my friend Peter Sammons, he wrote a very controversial, but I think also very biblical um, thesis. A doctor, uh, thesis is a reprobate on the non-elect, okay? Um, but here, the reprobate, I think, simply means, the most basic meaning is those that really hate God, very vile, okay? Um, but you might say, okay, this is only Old Testament, but James 4.4 4 in the New Testament says this, you adulterous, do you not know that friendship of the world is hostility towards who? God, okay? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God, okay? Now, I think there's a right way of going about this and a wrong way. If you hate someone and you say, oh, I don't ever want to see them get saved, then you're doing it what? Sure. Wrong, okay? Uh, you're doing it wrong, okay? In fact, you love God. Uh, I think true biblical hate and biblical love is love still trump over biblical hate. You hate the sin, but when you see someone come to faith, you still want them to come to faith because hell is such a hu- evil thing. You don't, a uh, horrible thing, a uh, horrifying thing. You don't want wish that upon anyone. That's forever. You want them to still be saved, okay? Uh, you don't want to wish that upon any of your enemies, okay? You still want them to be saved. Yes, you would despise them, right? But at the same time, you also, well, it's a love thing. You also want them to be saved, okay? Uh, for, uh, fourth characteristics, there's a worshiper. And, take, and by the way, let me say this. Because of our sinfulness, we sometimes struggle with the proper love and hate. True or not, okay? Uh, anger, I think there's a place for anger. But why does the Bible says, uh, don't let it go overnight? It's because anger... Anger is one of those things that have a really quick, a short shelf life that expires right away quickly and becomes sour right away, okay? It's one of those things you don't want to have. It's like mana, okay? You don't want to have it after a day, okay? Uh, and then you just have it and then give it to the Lord, okay? So the fourth characteristics also is integrity. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know what that means? He says he's going to keep his word even when it hurts, okay? That means, for instance, you say, oh, you know what? I'm going to pick you up to go to church. So, oh no, I, oh man, now I have to do something early in the morning beforehand. And he's going to do both what he's supposed to do with his parents and still go pick up others because he's keeping his word even to his own what? Hurt. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, even to his own hurt. There's a fifth characteristic, contentment. Verse 5. Could I have someone read verse 5? Until I say stop. He does not put out his money of interest. Nor does he take the bribe against the innocent. He who does these sins will never be shaken. Okay, thank you so much. So what we see here in verses uh, uh, 5, the at least with the first and second line, you should see his contentment. Now it talks about money. He says he does not put out his money in interest. Okay? I'll see? He doesn't charge interest. Yeah, he doesn't charge interest, okay? Uh, I think there's a context when someone's in need, okay? It does not tell you about banking, okay? In in need. And there's one of your friends or whatever, and then you're like, and he's really down in the dumps, and you still say, oh, you know what? 
this is an opportunity for me to make some money. Here, I'll borrow, but you borrow 500 and pay me back 700. It's like, whoa, 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 I'm really desperate. Okay, I'm going to take it. Ha ah, I'm going to make, you know, 40% interest rate or whatever. Okay? Um, but here, he's not. He's fulfilling what Deuteronomy 23, 19 to 20 says, right? Um, not loaning with interest. Uh, also, as well, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, he's content with money. He's not desperate to say, oh, I'm willing to do anything to get some money, even if it means that I have to tell lies, get a bribe, and to the detriment of someone that is an innocent party. Okay? So his application, when we look at these characteristics, if we're honest, are we perfect with all these? I know I'm not. No. I'm not. Okay? So I think as application, whenever we see a listing of any scripture of things like this, I think it's always good to ask yourself this question is, which one of these characteristics define you? Okay? Which one defines you? But then we also ask the honest question, which one do you struggle with or even is totally lacking in our life, okay? Um, and there might be a sense of bit of anguish. There might be a sense of frustration. It's like, oh, man, I tried so hard with this. Or, oh, man, I have not think about this for a while, but I am totally blowing this, okay? I have not even been convicted, but now I'm convicted because I haven't been thinking about this. I've sinned this way so long. But you know what? This doesn't stop here, Okay. The characteristics should either bring us reassurance or God's bringing you that conviction to bring about restoration, okay? Uh, restoration. I was meeting with a brother a few weeks ago, and he told me, you know what, Jimmy, I grow, the more I grow, one of the ways I know I grow is I know I'm sinful, but one of the things I, and this is someone in our church, said one of the ways I know I've grown is because I do welcome you others telling me where I'm wrong. Now, it doesn't mean it's not painful, but there's a sense where when you know you could go to God, confess, and you see God working in it, okay? I feel that's generally true in my life, okay? Uh, I try to be open and honest, okay? Um, there has been different, one of you guys have also pointed things out in my life, or, or even the thing I do in ministry, where I don't see it all. I really don't see it all, okay? As I grow more, I also realize I'm not a good judge of other people, and I need you guys. I need each one of you brothers sure. and sisters. Uh, and hopefully we, we achieve a happy balance that's the truth, okay? Uh, from each other, okay? So in light of this, also sometimes that means like, hey, Jimmy, you're wrong. You know, you are wrong in interpreting this person. Mm -hmm. You are totally wrong in seeing this. And you know what? I need to see this. Sure. We need to see this, okay? Because what we need to do is see our sinfulness, where we fall short, and also a need for what? God's grace, okay? It's only then we see deeper God's grace, and that's why we want this, is because we see the depths of God's grace in our life, that He uses that to restore and build us, Okay? So in light of this, this is where it gets really astounding. Let's go to the third part of our ending. Uh, point number three is what? If you guys have the outlines. Point number three is what? We need to what? trust in God's assurance, okay? Now, if you're reading this right, you might say, how could there be assurance? When we read this, we could be super convicted. How can we go to God if we don't? have this perfect integrity, if I don't keep my word until it hurts, when we look at all of this, I fall short, okay, I, Jimmy Lee, fall short, how do we then, yet there's a paradox, this is where suddenly grace comes in, do you see the ending of verses 5, he says, he who does these things will never be shaken, now, it brings assurance if we see these things, but then we might say, if we don't see these things totally true in our lives, if we fall short, how could this be? That how can we get assurance where it says he does these things will never be shaken? When you know what? I'm not perfect. Does that mean I'm sh now shaken? This is where I think mm -hmm. is important. This question you have, the question that I raised up, 
if you're reading this right, you should ask that question. But to see the hope, you then, you know, like the way I think God, the, uh, whoever arranged these psalms, of course, ultimately it's God, arrange it is such that the one question from one psalm sometimes bleed over to the next psalm and it answers that. Now let's look with me in Psalm 16. We're going to look at this next week. But do you see verses 16 is a, there's a, the theme, there's a change of tone. Psalm 16 verses 1. Psalm 16 verses 1. Uh, Psalm 16 verses 1. Preserve me, O God, or take refuge in you. Okay. Yeah, in you, okay? So notice now it's calling God for help, but let's, let's also read verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no God besides you. Okay. Yeah, did you see that? Uh, it, so your version say, uh, there's no Lord, you said? Except for you. You are my Lord. I have no good besides you, right? Did you catch that? Did you catch the amazing truth here? It says, there's no good inside me. But the only good that I have is in who? You. Is in you, Lord. Do you guys see that? In other words, is what theologists call an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. It's not organic to who we are, but we produce ourselves. This is a supernatural, imparted, um, justified grace. It's given by God. Okay. So as we read this, yes, it's how we interpret Psalm 15 is, yeah, if you are saved, you will bear fruit. Over time, you will be more honest. You will love others more, yes. You would love the saints more. You want to honor God's saints more. Those things are true. Those are fruits. But remember, fruits could be big or small, okay? Um, my goal is not to say, okay, let's compare your fruit and other fruit, which one's bigger. I don't think that's I think as a minister, as us as a Christian, is we see fruits and we say, hey brother, we're so glad we see fruits. And wow, look at your fruit now compared to five years ago. There's growth. Does that make sense? Yeah. And let's praise the Lord, okay? By the way, if you're busy comparing your fruit with others, you're going to go crazy, yeah. okay? Uh, if you're doing it in a way that's competitive, that makes you jealous, that makes you depressed, that's what. But if you compare in the sense of saying, oh, this is a good model for me, that's a healthy comparison. By the way, if you guys want more about comparison, a biblical view of comparison, uh, I encourage you guys to go on certain audio. For our couples meeting, we've done a really good uh, discussion, I think, uh, of what is, because there's biblical verses that talk about comparison is good, and there's some that's not. But I think we've looked at it very nuanced in a biblical fashion, okay? But I'll just say, that in light of all of this, this is our hope, okay? This is our hope. Psalm 16 anticipates that, and right away off the bat, already sets it up, say, you know what? Our hope, ultimately, any good that we have, when we approach God is found in who? Is in God. And ultimately in God, who became fully man and died for our sins. Okay? Beautiful God, yeah, beautiful so, Savior. We must yeah. always interpret the Psalms contextually. Okay? Psalms 15 shows us a world that doesn't seek God. Psalm 16 gives us hope that God is working in some to seek Him. But then it answers the question, how can we approach God in light of our sinfulness? In light of the law, and the law needs to be there, who can fulfill the law? Psalm 16 says, hey, God is righteous. He is the only righteousness we can have.